Hi everyone, Joel here. Just wanted to give you an update. In this episode, we had some audio quality problems in the early going, um, but they tend to straighten themselves out a little bit later in the episode, so if you can kind of work your way through them, um, we appreciate that. Also, I just wanted to let you know that we are looking at getting back into the studio in the near future, so uh, bear with us as we work through this difficult time, and we look forward to giving you a high-quality product in the near future again. Thanks for listening. Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education. With me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. We've talked on the show in the past about the nature of reality and its implications. Today we'll talk about what informs many of those beliefs about reality, namely our perspective. We are habituated to thinking of perspective as merely a point of view something subjectively relevant, but ultimately having no effect on the objective world. While sometimes this may seem to be the case, perspective has the potential to be much more powerful than this, with the ability to change history and perhaps even reality itself. All right, so we have recorded an episode on perspective before, and it didn't pan out. And um, we've had some technical difficulties in the early going here before we started the recording. So hopefully um, we'll make it through it and we'll have something for people. Um, Otherwise, uh, maybe we'll try it a third time a few months from now or something. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. We won't give up on this. (laughs) (laughs) It's too cool of a topic. Um, But it's been long enough. I think it was it was about a year ago that we did it that um, some of the stuff I I was going back and I go, okay, I remember talking about some of it, but some of it I thought, well, there's other things to explore here. So um, one of our one of our loyal listeners said, hey, you you mentioned in another episode that you did an episode on perspective and you're going to go back and do it again. So did you forget about it? And I said, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that cool that we have loyal listeners? I, what a humbling thing. How, how cool. <laughs> Let's dive into it. Um, perspective, it's, it's kind of a point of view. What, what separates perspective from a point of view or perception? I think that's really interesting because perception perception suggests well is about uh, percepts which are experiences of things objects outside of ourselves or things that are outside of ourselves and uh, perspective in the sense that there's a relationship because in the arts perspective was developed architecturally and and in painting and so on to uh, project uh, a a realistic uh, taking in awareness of 
the geometric space of the world around oneself. But perspective from the viewpoint, let's see, viewpoint is even perspective. It's exactly the kind of wording. Perspective suggests an already set collection of or cluster of assumptions that or experiences that cause one to see things or to take them in in a in a certain way so perspective suggests a canting a tipping or a view into something okay so a perception is kind of um you know the how we receive some information and then a perspective is sort of how we're utilizing or integrating that information and what we're what sort of meaning we're making out of it yes the the meaning the hermeneutics the interpretive uh the interpretations that we make yeah so does perspective have perspective obviously has limitations right um where you know you're you're seeing uh, the point of view right we have we have a point of view so you're taking information and then you're um, ascribing characteristics to what it is that you're perceiving. Yes. So it's kind of a two-way street. You're not, you're not merely receiving information of things as they are, but you're receiving information and then you are um, assigning characteristics or values to what you're receiving yes and this is you've just landed on the, the foundational the nexus point really of of how this connects the, the arts uh, theater ordinary uh, experiences because among other things where you sit whether metaphorically or literally, not talking about an audience, for instance, in the theater, but but where you are determines what you are able to see, and and you you certainly know that from all of your, your not just your military training, but your the, the work that you do. You can look at a product any number of ways, and it can appear differently depending on how it is how it is presented. A, a perspective. Well, what, jump to theater for a moment. Uh, the interpretation of the dramaturgy that that goes into trying to adequately and creatively find and make what a play is about. You have to start with the essence, which is what is it that the playwright has given us in a set of lines or, or what does a character say and what is what are the stage directions for what the character does so ultimately what you're looking at is what actually happens on the stage what what is the given that an audience will perceive or that a reader of a script will perceive and then how would an actor and the director working together make something where's the freedom of interpretation within a, a, a stage direction. For instance, a direction says the character yawns. 
okay, uh, Chekhov does this a lot. <laughs> and But how many different ways can one yawn? And that depends on what's being said around one that would cause one to respond. And so I, I like the theater example just as a start because I think it, it gives us a, a way in. Yeah, and that really does cross over to almost any kind of fields, right? We have issues with, like this all the time where I work, where, um, you know, you have a quality policy, right? And the quality policy calls out defects. You know, okay, you, you're you allowed to have, you know, um, a gouge that's, uh, you know, this deep, or you're allowed to have this sort of mark, this sort of thing. And that seems very empirically set. But then as you come across instances of things in real life, even if you have these um, hard and fast, that doesn't mean that things fall into them hard and fast. You know, there's well, is this a guy or is this a, a blister or is it, you know, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. At what point falls exactly on that one thirty seconds mark? Is does that make it good or bad? Or you know, um, and and this, what you realize is that it doesn't matter what your um, empirical guidelines are. There's a subjective judgment rendered um, on all. You know, you, there's there's no way around it. You can put it on the most finely tuned instrument and look at it, but when it comes down to it. Still, the person making decision whether or not it meets the, and um, you know that's so that's a business example. But the example you had of theater is great, and the same thing happens with um, all the other kinds of arts and things. You know, music. You know, orchestras are arranged the way they are because um, you know, the ability to record individual instruments and stuff. You wanted to set up the instruments around the room in order to give you the best mix of music and then seats down over in the audience, um, you know, develop certain, um, positive characteristics because of how certain sounds reach, reach the ear. It's still the same music being played at the same volume, all this different stuff, but just the placement of people, um, really changes how you, so yeah, there's, that point of view, that perspective, um, it's, it, it really shows that how we make sense of the world is highly subjective, even in very, um, what we'd consider objective situations. If you're presented with something that appears to be very concrete or literal, um, what you realize very quickly is that, um, people will, uh, interpret it in very different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So if we had, uh, let's, let's have a hypothetical, right? If we had an instrument or a series of instruments that was able to, um, you know, pick up on every aspect of, of what we consider reality, you know, you can see all of, all of the electromagnetic spectrum, um, all of the, you know, the, the frequency ranges, all, all these different things. Um, it could read thoughts, all this stuff. Would that machine have a lock on reality or would there still be something missing? Well, first, we we don't know exactly how many levels of reality 
there are. I mean, if we we have this, the the electromagnetic spectrum, as you say, but there may well be other levels that we aren't able to perceive yet. So it would probably be arrogant of us to say, "Yep." And once we have a machine that does that, we can see everything. I, I would be very hesitant about that. So it, you are seeing more of the layers of an integrative reality with such a machine uh, in prospect, but probably not everything, though. <laughs> so here's, here's where that gets interesting then, right? Because if we, let's say that, I think that that's a reasonable thing to say, right? Okay, so let's say we had all of the instruments that we needed. We could read everybody's mind. We can see all of the different levels of light and sound and, and all the different things, even stuff that humans aren't aware of, right? The okay. stuff that's beyond our perception. Somehow we had all these instruments so that we could perceive it all and we could, we could look at it objectively. I'll put in quotations. Okay. If we are to determine then that that isn't really going to be reality then I think what we're getting into is saying, well, is there a singular reality then, right? And this is kind of a staple of the philosophical thought of perspective. Yes. Is um, So, you know, well, if we had all these tools, could we actually know reality? Or even if we had all these tools, would there be different realities for different people or different parts of the universe or different part spaces in time, you know, would, would there be one reality or would there be a different reality depending on where you are? Well, um, objectively there might be one reality that we are peaking you know, in, in the sense of the sum total of all possible radiation, electromagnetics, the, everything that, resonates in the universe to me that, that the problem that that raises and you're you're getting at it here is is as much as to say this if i can see everything all at once then what am i going to choose to focus on and what i choose to focus on is the partial reality of the moment I mean, I, if if suppose I'm presented with this enormous painting, and somehow we've got a tool that can project that painting in its entirety into my mind without me having to look all around, and it's just all there. Or suppose I could stand out in space and actually get a, a 360 view, perhaps in in a gaming sense or in uh, virtual reality just because i can see all the stars and all the different colors of the stars i may be overwhelmed by that emotionally but what am i trying to do with that perception i think that becomes the, the perspective is uh, implies an intentional thing yeah so um you know, we're, we're looking at, I think that you're exactly right. And again, this comes back to our, our other examples, right? Um, art is a great one. I remember painting 
um, something one time and my dad, who's a really good artist saying, this is a good painting. And he said, the reason it's a good painting is because you have different objects of focus at different points. He said, painting and say, here, look at this. He said, cause you know, that, that's not what a good painting is about. Good painting makes you want to look over here and look over here and then go back up to the top and look again and, and see different things. Um, and music is the same way. Um, when, when I record stuff, that's the art of it is if you try, you know, if you try recording something and making everything sound realistic, what happens is it gets very muddied and kind of smeared. So what you have to do is make artistic decisions about what's important. So, um, if you have a, if you're recording a guitar, like an acoustic guitar, right? If I wanted to make that guitar sound through the speakers, like it sounds in the room, I could do that, but if I put it in the context of a mix, it would suddenly become this boxy, muddy thing. So what you have to do is you have to cut out a lot of the low end where the bass guitar or the bass drum sits. You have to cut out some of the high end where the where it con- conflicts with the vocal and stuff. And what you realize is that a lot of pe- normal people don't do this, but if you listen to a song and you really focus in on one element, like an acoustic guitar, what you realize is there's very little of it that sounds like an acoustic guitar in real life does. But it's this amalgamation of sounds together that creates this feeling of realism. And that's kind of how reality works in, in general. Um, You know, you just said two things came to mind with, with, which we were just articulating so well. And, one of them is also from a Chekhov play. Um, in a play called The Cherry Orchard, there's a moment when a guitar string snaps. And it's indicative of, of tension. It's, it's, it all ha- resonates with symbolism in various ways and import to the, to the story. But a director has to work really hard to make sure that you don't overwhelm everybody with like that string just taking over the entire scene but it can't be so subtle that people barely perceive it and it doesn't it, it doesn't really make it smart my art teacher uh, is has taught me the liberative liberating moment for me in my art development has been to pay attention to this lesson over and over which is draw or paint what you see not what you know is there and this is particularly true of things as uh, seemingly simple as hands one wants to draw all the details of a hand but most often we do not see the details of a hand when you're if you're working from a photograph or from a model the hand is hidden or the hand is in cloth or, or those kind of things so sometimes it looks more like a claw or a hook or a suggestion we know it's a hand and therefore we know that it, it, it conveys the humanity but it's not what we know is there it's it's what we're looking it's what we see which suggests both a, a concentration of of observational acuity without trying to embellish because we think we know the rest. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's surprising how few um, lines or brush strokes you need to communicate an idea to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that a lot. Which leads into 
um, you know, another question, which is, you know, so far we've talked quite a bit about um, perspective from a human point of view, which obviously um, is very important. But an, an equally important question is, do you need to be conscious to have a perspective or a point of view? Huh. So coming back to our first uh, question there, if we have all these instruments, right, that detect every part of reality, um, let's say there's an AI in charge of it, right? So the AI is coordinating all these instruments. It sees every part of reality. Um, now, whether or not the AI is conscious is a, a completely different argument, but it's it's definitely not human. Um, so does that AI, does it have a perspective or a point of view, or is it merely interpreting information? I would say it's interpreting information and, and building algorithmically a sense of what humans, various humans might prefer or, or might privilege. And, and so it might try to integrate those into a whole that is more likely to say, well, if you are interested in X, then here are three examples that I want you to look at. If you're interested in Y, then here are three other examples I want you to look at. I, I, if, I think that that's the way it would go if artificial intelligence works its way up to the hell, <laughs> 9,000 level, or Skynet, or whatever we want to talk about with the, the terminal aspects of AI. But it's, it's if you have a viewpoint, if you have... Co- complete access to everything, and not just access, but active, dynamic interplay with all of those things. AIs are still developed by humans. There's still going to be some uh, pre-built perspective, I think, in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... um, We're already kind of there, in a sense, um, because you see... If you look at how AI has been progressing in recent times, what you see is that it is making advances over humans in some regards, and it's lagging behind in others. So, like those decisions I was talking about with my work, like a quality sort of decision, it seems to be surpassing humans in that regard. Um, You know, there's a lot of medical evidence of it catching cancer signs much earlier, much more accurately those sorts of things than people do. Um, but when it comes to other aspects like writing a play or a song or these sorts of things, um, it, it happens to me probably on a weekly basis where, um, you know, Google news knows I'm interested in this sort of thing. So it's constantly throwing up articles. Hey, uh, you know, AI writes the next best musical hit. So I click on it and I listen to it. And I go, this is, this is garbage. It's like, it, it's, it's not that it, but that's the thing is not that it's garbage. It's using, like you said, it's using the information yeah. to try to spit out something that it thinks humans will like. And as it does, it has elements that do appeal to people, but it seems like a disjointed, disconnected sort of thing that, that doesn't really make sense. Um, it's an infinitude. Uh, it's the poet William Blake very spiritual, ethereal uh, poet, a, 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 
person of much accomplishment, but uh, long ago. And, but he says, if if the doors of perception are clean, cleansed, which is what we're talking about with this kind of AI thing, um, everything, everything would appear to be infinite. And and we aren't wired. <laughs> To just take in the infinite at every moment, it, we, it would blow our minds. <laughs> so, yes, I, I think AI, you're right about the medical, is making steps forward because it can collate or concatenate information and do it much faster and see things at a much more not quantum level, maybe entirely, but certainly a microscopic level. And so that's all very useful. But it is essentially seeing what we would see, but with much better eyes and a much faster pace. <laughs> right. Um, what about what about animals? Do you think animals, do they just perceive or do they have perspective? <laughs> Oh, there's a question because we keep coming back to animals from time to time, uh, language and, and those kind of things. I'll give you some. I'll give you some background before you answer because yeah, um, please, because you don't know what I'm thinking. You don't have my perspective. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I read a book. Um, it's one of the most interesting books I've ever read. I go through it occasionally. Um, uh, the Origins of Consciousness and the Bi- the Rise of Bicameral Mind. Um, which talks about, you know, it's, it's, it's a science informed, um, sort of postulation on how consciousness developed in human beings. Um, and basically what it says is, yeah, until about, you know, a few thousand years ago, human beings weren't actually conscious. Um, they had all of the same, uh, you know, mental faculties and things, but there was just some connections in the brain that hadn't quite been made yet so they act in a very animalistic way and how that's sort of manifested if you were to put yourself in the shoes of a human from that long ago was um you'd have immediate perception you know you could see and hear and do those things um but there was no metacognition there was no self-reflection there was just the voice of the gods speaking to you telling you what to do and of course the voice of the gods was not actually the voice of the gods. It was, you know, part of your brain. The you know before these connections have been made, before you could self-reflect or You're think talking about, about Julian James. You're yes, talking about the yes. Julian James. Well, yes, I've I've read this. Yeah, okay. right. So, without the ability to self-reflect or to have metacognition and think about thinking, you could still think, but you couldn't think about thinking. So. You could perceive, you could go around, you could do things, but you had this voice of the gods telling you what to do. And so, and you look at ancient literature, and that's the way a lot of it's written is, okay, well, God or this God or, you know, somebody spoke to me and then I I did this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and in his, his, uh, so that kind of connects back to the animals, right? He's saying, he's thinking that, okay, this is probably how animals think. Not with the voice of the gods sort of thing, but they live in the moment. They perceive through sight and sound and things, but there's no, they can't think about their own perspective. They can't think about thinking. They just operate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, 
that's one part of it. Um, and now the other part right, escaped me. I had a right before I started talking, and now it's gone. Uh, well, and, and um, it's important that you laid all that up. Uh, so, what? You, but back to the question, maybe this will stir it up with you. Do animals have perspective, or do they just perceive? Is that essentially what you were asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and if we follow what you're taking from from, from James, I think the only perspective argument might be in the, the construction of their, let's say, their visual apparatus. Not all, all creatures don't all have visual apparatus, but so there there are limits to that. But how how they hear or how they sense things through the physical apparatus is itself a kind of limiting perspective. Which is, I guess what I'm trying to say roughly is that well, my cat is sitting behind me and my constant companion. Cats see differently than we do. We have enough simulations from the, no, we have the research to know this. How a horse sees, so the, the limits of the eyesight of the horse, for instance, whether there's color or not. Now, these things may seem alien to us. They aren't going to be alien to the animal because it's all the animal knows. And, and, yeah, and I remember the other part of it now, which was I watched an uh, interesting um, documentary last week on... Uh, I think it was the cradle of the earth as it was called. It was, is a documentation of, um, all of the human species that have lived throughout history. So yeah. it goes through them all. And it was the last one, you know, is, is the Neanderthal. And they talk about how, okay, Neanderthals, you know, we used to think that they were pretty much apes, but it turns out they had brains much bigger than ours. Um, they had the ability to speak. They formed small cultures and things, but, What's interesting about it, so, you know, they were asking, like, why, how did Neanderthals die out, but humans survived? Neanderthals were much more physically robust. Um, they lived in communities. They had bigger brains than humans. Why, how did humans manage to outlive the Neanderthals? And one thing that was super fascinating to me was that they showed tools, spearheads from humans and Neanderthals over the course of like 10,000 years or something. And so you see the first Neanderthal um, spearhead, and it's just this rough wooden, or, you know, this rough chiseled stone. And you see the humans, and it looks just the same. And then a few years later, the Neanderthals looks the same, and the humans has gotten slightly sharper. Then you see a few years later, the Neanderthals looks the same, and the humans has gotten uh, sharper and serrated, you know, and, and so they go through the whole history of it and you see the human technology continue to advance and adapt and get better. And the Neanderthal stays essentially the same throughout its entire history. And they said, okay, well, yeah, the Neanderthal had the bigger brain, but really the parts of the brain that were bigger were focused on, um, perception. So they were, they had much higher visual acuity. Um, they had, um, basically they were able to perceive the world much more accurately than we are, mm -hmm. but that the frontal lobe, the part of it that does the thinking about thinking that does the, the social integration, these sorts of things, mm -hmm. um, they didn't, they didn't have part of. So kind of combining that with our animal discussion, you know, what about Neanderthals? 
did they have a perspective as a human species or were even they just kind of perceiving the world and going about doing their thing and then when that didn't work rather than adapting um they died out as well what where do we draw that line between perceiving and perspective having a perspective i well it's messy because i think i think one would say the neanderthals did have perspective in which whether we're talking individual or we're talking collective that, that's important to keep in mind but let's let's say uh, either one we want to go with because the hardware so to speak of of the brain is the mind is uh, wired to take in uh, visually acute or sensually acute information they're seeing the world differently than we have the capacity to see so that is arguably a perspective uh, and and this is where it mushes for me with perception if if you live on a mountain you've never left the mountain you've never been in a valley then your perspective on the world is being trained i would argue even psychologically to see the broader view so the 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 circumstances might determine the perspective well the physical circumstances of any being partly just determines how that being looks into the world human beings can change or some of us have the capacity we all have the capacity to change whether we embrace that or not is is always a question of the moment but so perspective can change if you have the the capacity through the frontal lobe to be able to do that unchanging perspective doesn't mean a perspective doesn't exist it just means that it's locked in yeah okay yeah that's good um that's a good uh explanation and an interesting part of that was that um you know they sort of traced the extinction of the neanderthals right so they followed where these last groups um kind of went and they they ended up in the in some caves near uh Gibraltar. And what they found is that in these caves where the Neanderthals eventually kind of died out, you saw the first um Neanderthal art. So they actually um carved some things in, into the rocks and stuff. And they said they'd never seen this at any other site at any other point in their history, but all of a sudden at the end they did it and and they had this really kind of cool segment on you know what were they trying to say with these marks was it you know what was their perspective on the world now that their species had had died out and had been replaced by these other things you know that's and so again serious <laughs> yeah yeah and, and that gets into you know this this idea of where does you know the perception and end and perspective start but i think that you point out a good you know you you put it pretty well which is that they're not they're not mutually exclusive you know even if you can't change your perspective it doesn't mean that the one doesn't exist but i've always that's always been something that's fascinated me is looking at the last um individuals of of certain species you know it's it's sad but it makes you it does make you wonder what what are they thinking 
when right. they're all alone like that. I'm, you're you're making me think of um. There, there's a writer that I uh, used to enjoy uh, in college named uh, Anias Nin, and uh, among other things, uh, said that the, the purpose of art, and you're talking about these Neanderthal markings as a uh, shaping as a, as a kind of art, is is to renew or refresh our our perceptions uh, because when we get so familiar with something we don't see it anymore and only by seeing something freshly can we change and what you just said when, when you say that uh, about the neanderthals i'm thinking how profoundly evocative and yet sad that perhaps at the end of their existence they were beginning to develop the very thing that would have continued their existence. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like one of those uh, moments where, Oh, and then there's, <laughs> then it's too right. late. Like and you come to the answer, but it's too late. Yeah. And that's the end of it. And I think that that says something about human perspective as well, you know, and, and what the importance of storytelling to us, right. Cause we've talked about the importance of stories um, oh, yes. in, recently. Um, but I think that, that perspective um, gets ingrained into us. And then we start letting that warp our realities because we have this idea of how, how a storyline should go and where things should develop. But the truth of the matter is that reality can be harsh like that, where, you know, okay, you have a species, you're successful and then you die out. And then at the end, you, you find the thing that could have saved it, but it's too late. It doesn't matter. But yeah. there's also the part of the story where, you know, you look at it and you say, okay, well, you know, most living humans alive have two to 4% of their DNA from Neanderthals. And, um, there's a lot of evidence that that DNA serves an important purpose in your immune system and in, you know, some of your other, some of your other aspects. <laughs> and, um, so in, in a way they sort of do live on and, that raises the question of what it means to be human and uh, <laughs> all kinds of other stuff. It does. Can, all it know, goes, all it balloons. It's, it's, right. It's it's too big for us to get into here. But um, it, it really displays the interconnected nature of not just philosophy, but of perspective. You know, you can think, you can start to think that you understand what it means to, what a concept means. But then when you really start digging into the minutiae, just like me looking at a part at work and trying to determine if the defect is too big or too small, trying to determine if the Neanderthals really did die out is not as clear cut as it appears, you know? No. I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it, to boil it all down, the perception is the act of, let's say, seeing or hearing or apply what sense you will. Uh, so, I see a glass. It has liquid in it. I determine that the glass is cylindrical. These are all percepts. They're called percepts, right? That's a, and the, the liquid inside is vaguely green. All right. And, but for, so that's perception. Perspective is what tells us that we think it's half full or half empty. We see the glass in perception. We see liquid in the glass. Our perspective uh, puts a judgmental evaluation on what it is we're seeing. Right. So, you know, why do you think it is that 
perspective can change our reality. And we talked about this in the, in the first time we recorded the episode. I don't think we talked about most of this stuff the first time we recorded. It. <laughs> I don't think so. uh, it, it's all new. <laughs> which I mean, this that it makes me want to do a bunch of episodes again because I always think about it like, yeah, we did that episode on education, but there's a lot more to talk about. Or we did that episode on consciousness, but there's more to talk about. So absolutely, yeah. Well, well, I'm sure at some point in time we'll revisit all of these, but um, yeah, this is this is kind of proof in the pudding that uh, we, we can talk about the same thing again and not really touch a whole lot of the same things. But this is one of them. We talked yeah. about it the first time around. Why can perspective change our reality? And two examples specifically are um, the placebo effect and nostalgia warming, which are scientifically observed um, things where, you know, if, if somebody's cold and you get them to have nostalgic feelings, their body, their physical body temperature will raise. Okay. So it's yeah. not in their head. It's something that actually happens. They actually get warmer. Mm-hmm. The placebo effect, right? Um, if you give two groups of people pills, or three, you have three groups. A control group doesn't get anything, a group that gets a pill that has nothing in it, and a group that gets a pill that has an effect in it. It's pretty, you know, consistently what happens is the control group, nothing happens. You know, your experimental group will have some kind of effect. And a placebo group will also have some kind of effect. Not as strong as the experimental group, but usually, you know, just as often as not, something happens with the placebo group versus the control group, even though they're both technically not receiving anything. Why do you think that that is? How do you think that happens? Well, I think the the how... I think the how may be simpler than... Than the why, I don't know because I'm not an anatomical master. Uh, but to to think about the physical responses that the mind can generate, we're back to the mind-body problem. We won't even go there again, except to say that there it is again. Uh, how how does it happen? Well, if we can isolate that, the body upon a certain stimulus releases certain energy in order to warm the body we can perhaps we describe the process why it happens is perhaps less explicable from my viewpoint Uh, but it's 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 certainly extraordinarily useful to have happen people do similar things with studies of, of prayer and 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 one doesn't have to be person of religiosity in order to in order to examine this that somehow if one is applying a focused meditation or focusing thoughts upon a person and a person knows that some there are people focusing thoughts upon them then that generates a kind of energy for that person well i don't think it, it needs to be spiritually mysterious at all to say that yeah if i know suddenly a lot of people are concerned about me it may make me want to try to <laughs> try to function a little bit better, uh, and so from the. But what the question is really is: is this this is perspective changing our lives, right? Yeah, yeah, and and of course it does because if we are convinced that 
nothing good is ever going to happen again, for instance. We just get into the slew of despond, and 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 we say it's all over, it's done, close the pub on the, on the world, then our perspective is one of saying, I can't see any way out of this, therefore a way doesn't exist. Um, and, but if somebody tells me I may have been given a way out of something, it's possible, then my mind is saying, okay, believe that it's happening, and perhaps it will. I mean, how many sports? I've I've heard this for you know decades. The idea of see yourself sinking the basket, and you will. Well, right. Yeah, that's rather like Yoda talking to Luke Skywalker too. <laughs> maybe it will, and maybe not. But it has a chance. And that's a fascinating thing about people, right? Is we are notoriously bad at calculating odds, and we're always thinking. You know, well, I guess not always, you know, sometimes, like you said, people um, think that something's hopeless when it, it's not. It's, you know, you actually could find a way out. And other times, um, the odds are almost impossible, but people just have a confidence that something is going to work out. And, um, you know, I, how that perspective ends up actually changing what's happening is, is interesting. Because, you know, I mean, in some ways... You know, it, it makes you wonder, is it all is it all biochemical messengers? Is it just you releasing different hormones in your brain and that's causing you to get warmer or to have some sort of positive physiological response to your thoughts? Yeah. Or um what what does it work? Is it is it a cultural or a social thing? Like you said, if you if you know that the group is pulling for you, um and you feel like you have a valid, um, important place in it, does merely, you know, having that those thoughts make you want to, um, you know, push through and, and you know, serve yeah. as your part? Or what, what makes this happen, you know? And it, it raises the question, um, you know, when you see these things pan, play out in real life, it makes you wonder, do, do truth and reality really exist? It comes back to the question we asked at the beginning of the show. Is there an objective truth and reality, and we're seeing parts of it? Or is truth and reality different depending on your perspective? Uh, yes, I think that I think that one separates one is inclined to separate those things uh, unless you use unless you say something like this. So this is how some parts of philosophy work. People talk about whether or not the object actually exists. And there are cartoons about this. Ah, okay, let me show you the exists. I'll pick up the stone. I don't know if that stone exists or not. I pick up the stone, I toss it at your foot. Hmm, I think it does. Yeah, and, and so there, 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 there's a reality. Not transferable, but a, a transactional in some ways. Reality. We do encounter objects. Now, there's still some philosophers who, who would say, no, no, we're making that up. You know, we're doing that. But for me, it's more of the hard and fast. Yes, I can touch a table. I know that that table is molecularly uh, particulate. I know that the reason my hand stops, I, I know because we've the scientists uh, make this abundantly clear, that the... Uh, 
adherence among all the particles, the atoms, with the electromagnetic fields make it impossible for me to pass my hand through just by touching it. And yet, it's, it is a collection of atoms. So seemingly, I ought to be able to just pass my hand through like the vision walking through a wall in, in the Marvel comics. But I, but there's still a, re, a tangible reality. My finger touches the table. I can feel it. I am of the school that says, yes, therefore that exists. I have perceived it independently. It exists out there. I have encountered it. That, that's where I am. Yeah, it's kind of um, triangulation of the truth, sort of, where um, we have we have this perspective, right? We're, we're proceeding, like you said, the table. The table to us appears to be solid because of how we perceive it. Yeah. But if you perceive it with different instruments, it becomes very different. And I remember they did this at summer camp one year, right, where you take like a beach ball and they set it down. And then they walk like 200 feet away and they put down a dodgeball and they say, all right, this is, this is the scale of an atom. That's the nucleus and here are the electrons out here. This, yeah. is, this is to scale. And you're like, well, if that's to scale and that's an atom and everything's made up of atoms and these, you know, these things on the outside are spinning and they never touch each other, that's so much space. How, come, how can anything be dense enough to be solid? You know? And yeah. this is a question that you know, it doesn't just blow the mind of an eight-year-old at summer camp. It blows the mind of the smartest people in the world when you get to the level of, um, you know, classical, uh, you know, classical physics versus quantum physics. And we still can't make them work together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and you start looking at things below the atom, below our instruments, where you say, okay, well, we have atoms and then we have uh, quarks. And then below that, we have, I don't know, strange matter. I, you know, it's like, we don't know. We don't know how, um, how reality works. And the best we can do is take measurements or look at it from the perspectives that we have. And then even if they don't match up, we can maybe sort of box it in. We can say, okay, well, if I'm looking this way, this way, and this way, where does that Venn diagram intersect and you know what's in there we based off of what we know that must be true or reality but it always leaves the question that if you have better instruments or you have different instruments developed does it make it you know what are those going to read and is it going to shrink that intersection or is it going to expand it and you know it, the history of science sort of demonstrates that you're going to get both um yes. you know at some point at some point, you're, you're going to shrink it down and you're going to think that you have it. And then all of a sudden, you're going to come up with something new and it's going to blow up the entire paradigm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and, but, but um, there's, still a, there's still a reality. It's just a reality that is broader or narrower right. than, than, than we thought. Um, so the, the sum total of reality, as we talk about with the AI being able to perceive everything at once, hasn't changed but our ability to see it again has changed that there's there's that perspective I, I i always go back to this play the lion in winter it's a, it's, it was a, a, a oscar-winning movie in the late 1960s it's based on a play it's about king henry and eleanor of aquitaine and it's, it is probably the most delightful excursion into uh, psychological, political family dynamics that I've ever encountered. 
Um, but there's a place in which the king has three sons. Only one of them can be king. All of them are plotting against the king. He wants them to plot against him because that's what kings will do to become kings. And they're all, but he's locked him in the dungeon. And he's going to, he, he's thinking he's going to have to kill all three of his sons and then father another child to start all over again. And, and, and there is the, the stoic, poetic, brave uh, Richard, uh, Richard Lionheart is the, that character. Uh, there's Jeffrey, who's just very mechanistic about everything, and and the, and they're and, uh, and they're the brothers are anyway. Their brothers are in the, <laughs> and then there's John, who's just witless, and the and the brothers are in this dungeon, and and they hear the father coming, and Richard, stalwart Richard, says he's here. He'll get no satisfaction on a bus. Don't let him see you beg. Take it like a man. <laughs> just you know, let Dad kill us. And Jeffrey says, you fool, as if the way one falls down matters. And Richard said, when the fall is all there's left, it matters a great deal. <laughs> wow. So, you know, there's pers there's perspective in a nutshell. The reality yeah, is dad's coming to kill us. The, the perspective is how we die. Right. Uh, or does it matter how we die? <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's a question. I mean, that informs a lot of human, a lot of human actions, and a lot of human thoughts. And um, every once in a while, some form of art really hits on that poignantly. And and you know, the moment it happens, the one that sticks out to me is um, in uh, Interstellar, where Matt Damon's character attempts to kill Matthew McConaughey's. And so he cracks open his visor and, and, you know, he's losing the atmosphere into the space. And, you know, Matt Damon's character, you know, expresses sympathy for him and then says, I can't watch you die. I got to leave. And he takes a couple steps away and then he turns around and he says, they say that the last thing you see before you die, you die is the face of your children. Do you see your children's faces? You know, and then, yeah. Yeah. As this guy's just gasping and trying to find, you know, and it, something about that, you know, I watched that and I was like, wow, that's really powerful because yeah. here's one guy who's having this deeply philosophical moment. And then here's another guy just primally struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. But there's a very good chance that they both might be experiencing that same perspective at the same time. And that gives you just this insight into the complexity of humanity, right? This it this does. animalistic striving to survive, and then this <laughs> coldly analytical thought about what what survival means, you know, and, and what drives it, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and I I had a lot of other of other stuff for this episode that um, I I had from the notes from the uh, from the old episode. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think we'll get into it for time's sake. We we might end up doing another one down the road. But all right, all right. Um, I, I think that this has been this has been a good conversation so far. So I've very much enjoyed it. All right, we'll we'll get back into it another time. Until next time, keep on going.